there, Java junkies. It's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have an exciting announcement to share with you. On April 17th, Time for Coffee is going to hold its first in-person live event. That's right. We're inviting you to join us in the audience for free. And we've got all kinds of cool swag to give away to the first 25 Java junkies who show up. So make sure to get there early. We're calling it Time for Coffee's Caffeinated Career Mini Summit. And it'll take place at the University of Maryland at 7 p.m. on April 17th. And for those of you in the area, we hope you'll join us at Maryland's College Park campus. Just go to timeforcoffee.org to get more information. Now, let's get on with the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. What's up? How's it going? Welcome to another episode of T4C. I hope you are having an awesome day, whether you're biking to class or maybe binging while you're doing laundry or cooking or running errands. Those are actually some of my favorite ways to listen to the podcast that I love because I am a huge multitasker. And so is my next guest, who is not only the co-CEO and founder of a film production company, but she's also a musician, a singer, and a hugely successful chief executive officer, having worked for decades in the cutthroat business world of Silicon Valley. And there is so much more to this story. But before I introduce you to Michelle Betancourt and to let her share her remarkable journey to where she is today, I want to make sure you've all signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we send out on Mondays, giving you a heads up on the new episodes of T4C and the guests that we're going to be featuring all that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. It's right there on the homepage. I also have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoy listening to T4C, I would be so grateful if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and give Time for Coffee a review and a rating because there are more than 500,000 podcasts out there right now and I need your help to break through. Just like Job in one of my favorite Dr. Seuss books, Horton Hears a Who, Remember all those people, the Who's from Whoville, living on that speck of dust. And they needed to prove to those mean guys who wanted to force Horton to drop the clover that they were living on into a big pot of boiling oil. And Horton was holding onto the clover with his trunk, trying to get everyone to believe him. Well, we are that tiny speck and we need every Java junkie's help saying, we're here, we're here, we're here. (laughs) So thanks so much. Now, my friends, it is that time. So please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my super talented and delightful next guest is Michelle Betancourt, the co-CEO and founder of He Said, She Said Productions and the executive producer and the vocalist 
and the drummer featured in the new rock album called New Normal, which you can download on iTunes. Michelle has worked in Silicon Valley since 1982 and has served as a CEO and board member of multiple public and private companies, selling one company for $500 million and another for $375 million. And in 2017, Michelle transitioned and considers herself to be a non-binary male to female. She did All of this, by the way, while she was CEO and chairman of Imperva, a cybersecurity software and services company which provides protection to enterprise data and application software. Michelle, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am super caffeinated. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Oh, you are so welcome. So you're caffeinated. What is your favorite caffeinated beverage of choice? I have a Pete's coffee, but a double shot of espresso in front of me right now. Very nice. A woman after my own heart. So, Michelle, I know you have had a lot of firsts over the course of your life, and I have too, but I want you to know This interview is a first for me on Time for Coffee because I have as yet to have the honor of featuring and interviewing someone who has transitioned as you have from male to female. And I want you to know I am just thrilled to have this opportunity. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. I want to start things off before we get into your career, both with what you're doing now and what you have done for several decades, with asking you to please explain to Java junkies who may not be familiar with what we mean when we say that you are non-binary male to female. I've always been in the middle, if you will. So I've kind of identified part female, part male. And for years, it was a massive struggle because I was pretty good at keeping the secret. And then I hit a point where I just could no longer. I'd I'd exhausted my inability to do so. I had kids. I had a wife. I had a a very great job in the Silicon Valley with a public company. And I decided enough was enough. It's difficult to explain other than it's about the first time in my life I feel really good about myself, which is a terrible thing to say at age 58. A terrible thing on the one (laughs) hand, but on the other, a wonderful, beautiful thing that you are finally living the authentic you. It's lovely, by the way. And it's it's nice not to have to hide anymore. It feels really, really, um, there's a tremendous sense of freedom that I have now, which I love. And it's It's shown up in my post-career endeavors as well, which is great. Yes. And let's get into that because your current job is co-CEO and founder of He Said, She Said Productions, where you have been the executive producer of a documentary called Beautiful Lie. What is the documentary about, Michelle, and what inspired it? So I was um, I was running a public company in Perva, really phenomenal company, great, just a great team, great market, and we were doing well. But I was becoming a bit unhinged, and I'd say in about the last year of me running the company, I went off and formed a production company with a a really 
good documentary filmmaker who, whose work I admired. I flew him everywhere with the camera team and we just captured the footage. We had no idea where it was going, by the way. Joe Libero is the director and my partner. I know it, it made him crazy at times and frustrated to have to deal with me. But we decided that we would just capture what we could and see where it went. I refer to it as, as, my, as my years of, of living dangerously because I was exiting work and I was, uh, it was my last year of CEO and chairman and it was a very messy year for me. Super, super messy. I just, I didn't quite understand what I was going through and I really wasn't very self-aware during it. And I had the benefit of, you know, a company of a thousand employees and the employees were fabulous and my board was okay. So once the work ended and my head was clear, we started doing the edits. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to put together a film that was an honest and authentic portrayal of what it's like to go through one of these things. Because a lot of people do it. And a lot of people are, are sideswiped by their own emotions and, and, and by what hits them, whether it's their family, their work environment or, or whatnot. And I was also very aware of the fact that it's difficult for transgender individuals to get jobs. We could talk about that later, but there are some interesting statistics that show that the odds are stacked against certain individuals from finding good, good gainful employment. I wanted to be a change agent in that. And I, I felt somewhat that if, if I looked out, uh, I knew what it was like for me at the tail end of work. And because it was a public company, I had public company investors. And I think a few in particular felt that I presented probably too much baggage for the company going through what I was going through. And and that that was really part of my exit, by the way. I exited myself because it was was clearly not going to work. And so I I wanted to put together a film that at least gave an accurate portrayal of that. And and I wanted to believe that, that you know, we're, we're, I think we're 30 years away when you'll have transgendered individuals running public companies. I think we're just, we've just in the past five years come up to the point where it seems crazy to say this, having someone gay run a, run a public company, it's, it's kind of accepted. But if you remember when Tim Cook took over Apple, all of the questions that, that he was facing, it was, was his gayness going to, going to affect the company? And so I, I, th- I think we're 30 years away for transgendered and I didn't want to set it back 30 years. I wanted to, I wanted to do something authentic. They could hopefully move it forward. So when is the film going to premiere? And so, yes, sorry. No, no, that's a great question. Thank you. I apologize. We've submitted to film festivals. We'll be at the New Hope Film Festival in July and we're going to premiere it then. And we're excited. We finished it late last year and we've done a lot of edits and we've tried to go back and keep it current and it will be good to get it out. It was, it was a labor of love, but it was also a labor of pain. Every time I watched it, it would set me back week because in effect, we captured what was probably what would have been, I think, one of the most difficult years for anybody. You know, my father passed. I was going through this job change. I was going through personal changes. Now, it's nice now that I can actually watch it and and be relaxed when I watch it. My kids are in it. My wife is in it. I have a lot of co-workers that were interviewed. I was lucky to have a great support system. Do you think, Michelle, that you could have become as successful as you are today, had you transitioned as a younger man? I don't think so. And I I think because, look, there are societal norms and being transgender is a a very visual thing. You can, one could, and I don't mean this to be a, a, a mean statement, one could hide their gayness. You can hide it. I was on the board of a very, of a really excellent company. This market cap now is almost $4 billion and I was there before it was public. And I remember their CEO pulling me aside at one point, almost to, almost to confess that he had a partner and he was trying to keep it quiet. And that was in the past five years. But I think when you move to transgender, there's a visual external representation of being transgender. 
mean, I don't look anything like I used to. You know, when I ring the closing bell at, at the New York Stock Exchange for Imperva, I look pretty different. My hair is much longer. My skin's a little different. You know, I had, I had little kids at the time and I had I had a career and I was fearful of it ever getting out. And uh, I, I think I think it would have been a tremendously difficult impediment for me. Why did you want to call the film Beautiful Lie? What are you telegraphing to your audience? I, th- I think a couple of things. I, I, number one, I lived a lie for a lot of years. I just did. I had a regimen. I would, I would go to work. I would get in a plane. I'd fly somewhere. I would get to my hotel and I would change. I'd put on hair and makeup and I'd go sit in the bar and work. I did this for years and years and years. I would work in the evening, do email and whatnot. And I kept it a secret until it wasn't a secret any longer. And it, it was a, a tough secret because I, I kept it away from my kids. I kept it away from my family. I kept it away from my coworkers. And when you changed and put on makeup and women's clothing, was that because the urge was so overwhelming? Can you put into words for those who can't appreciate what it's like to live in a body as a transgender male or female? I just felt, seems, I know it seems odd for those, some of those listening, but, but I felt more comfortable sitting out relaxed as what I thought was myself. Now, you know, I look back a decade ago and I, lo- I look, I even look back three years ago. I think I've landed <laughs> as to where I'm going to land right now. I feel great about myself on life's easy. I've got my own hair. I've got my own fingernails. I, I've got my own eyelashes. It's all good. I've not had any surgery. I've had laser. I certainly spent a lot more time trying to keep myself in good shape by exercising a good diet, but I just felt a lot more natural being out as as Michelle than I did Anthony. And I used to go by AB, which was Anthony Betancourt. And I've told him, if, if you knew me as AB, call me AB. Because if you start changing my name with me, I'll, it'll, it'll confuse me. So I've got people, <laughs> people who call me AB, people who call me MB. And I'm, I'm good with both. I, I, at this age, I'm not caught up in pronouns. I'm just happy to be me. Well, it is such a pleasure to interview you, Michelle. And Another one of your many talents is that you have written and produced a new rock album. Oh my God. Available on iTunes called New Normal. And you co-wrote it with Hendrik Helmer and recorded it with various studio luminaries in New York. Why did you want to take on a rock album at the same time you're executive producing and starring in your own documentary. You know, my life is one happy accident after another. It just has, has always been this way. I was in Machu Picchu with my wife and we were touring Peru for a week on a National Geographic tour. And my last two days in Machu Picchu, I started writing and I wrote what I thought seemed like five songs. I remember the song was called Absence, the first, the first one I wrote. It took me 20 minutes. I wrote it on a park bench in Lima, Peru. But this is the first time I'd ever written anything. And certainly I'm, I'm not a singer, but I just couldn't find anyone else to sing the lyrics like I wanted them sung. So it, it turned out okay. Well, I beg to differ with you because I have listened to the entire album and you have a lovely voice. And you mentioned the song Absence. That song yeah. actually really resonated with me. And I actually wrote down the lyrics and I'd like to read just this one part to our listeners. You say, you found me in a heap of ash, broken axle out of cash. Which one of me did you find to love? 
which one of me did you learn to leave? Seems no matter how hard we try, absence makes the heart run dry. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I haven't been me since I don't know when. Which one of me did you find a love? Which one of me did you learn to leave? What inspired that song? My wife and I were having issues at the time. And she's a wonderful woman. I mean, the, the, she, the fact that she's able to deal with me, I think is amazing. I remember skipping out on the last day of the tour. I just had to go off on my own. And I sat on a park bench and wrote those lyrics down. Then it was really about, she fell in love with one version of me, but I turned into a different version. Happily, no one left anybody. We had a little bit of a, a little bit of a time away from each other, but we've done really well and uh, married 26 years. And I think year 26 seems to be our best one so far. Well... I highly recommend that Java Junkies check out that wonderful album, New Normal, and I will repeat it and I'll also include it in show notes because I'm not doing it justice and you have a lovely voice, Michelle. My voice is like cats mating. In, oh, you know, in stop an alley. It. No, it is. <laughs> it really is. It is actually one of the gifts I wish I had that I absolutely do not have. And I have so much admiration and a little bit of envy <laughs> for those uh. of you who can sing. So, you know, as I said in the introduction, until fairly recently, you spent the entirety of your professional life, and that was about 35 years in the corporate world. What inspired such a sharp right turn from being the CEO of various super successful public and private companies to go into film and music production? And how do you think the skills that you honed as a CEO, Michelle, may have actually positively affected your artistic endeavors? So I had spent a lot of years in corporate, um, as you said, 35 years. And my last job, I had a thousand employees. And during my tenure there, the market capitalization went from 750 million to 1.6 billion. Revenues went from about 130 to 320 million. And then, then I had a, a situation occur with an investor and, and that investor had gone to our board and said, did you know that your CEO is transgendered? I'd always enjoyed a very privileged life as a, as a white male. And all of a sudden I was under siege and it wasn't that the board was difficult, but it was no one knew what to do. And, and I understand that. And so I found a good constructive way just to get myself out so I could get on with my life. And so I found myself in New York out of work, but my being out of work means that I, I've, um, I have a lovely apartment in the Upper East Side and I've got a lovely life and I go out to eat whenever I want. And so my being out of work is like, is not a bad thing. It's just, I had a lot of free time on my hands. I had finished the documentary and I, I, I've always really envied those who could earn a living in the arts. And while I've never shot away from new challenges, and I wanted to take a little bit of time to see what I could do in film and music. And I realized that my executive skills are great. I could build great teams. I could manage projects. I could keep us all focused and on schedule and I could manage a budget. And I, th I, think, I think my creative skills are really good in, in those areas. We've streamed 20,000 songs last month on, on Spotify, which is good. And I think we're, we're getting an uptick, but I'm not writing best hits. And, and when it comes to movies, as, as I sat and went through the editing process, I was, I was a fish out of water. So I think what I've learned is I'm really good at the executive stuff that, that, that I used. 
when I use those skills to run a company. And I, I remain envious of those who can earn a living from the arts because that's, 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 I can't. Well, not yet, right? <laughs> not yet. You're just at the beginning of this. And yeah. who knows what's going to happen and evolve over the next 10, 15, 20 years? I, I tend to gravitate back to the work stuff of which I'm really comfortable because that's where my skill set is. And I, I think at some point I'll, I'll go back to serving on boards and, and trying to play more of a, an active role in businesses. Well, it's also about if you enjoy it, yeah. why not do it as well? Exactly. Exactly. So, Michelle, you have also founded the nonprofit Michelle Betancourt Foundation for Transgender Fair Employment, which happens to be especially relevant considering Time for Coffee's mission is to help young people of all genders, races, religions, and socioeconomic backgrounds to convert their college degrees into careers they love. Why did you feel the need to create this foundation so early in your own transition? When I transitioned at work at Imperva, and again, they were great, but I was a bit of a mess. And, and I think my being a bit of a mess created a more difficult environment than I would have normally had. But I did realize that there's certain behaviors that, that came back at me based upon this whole notion of me being transgendered. And, and again, there were, there were some large investors, we're talking funds, major funds in, in New York and Boston that were concerned. And I began to sense a little bit, a little bit of different kind of treatment. And I began to do a lot of research and, and realize that you know, there's not a lot of transgendered CEOs in tech maybe two or three. It's a pretty de minimis amount. And I wanted to do something to help bridge that gap. Today, more than one in four transgendered individuals have lost a job due to bias. And three quarters have experienced some form of workplace discrimination, net refusal to hire, privacy violations, whatever it is. It's a problem. And again, I, I think we're 30 years away from it not being a problem. And I wanted to initially do some research and then raise some money and help find ways to pull that in a little bit so there is not a 30-year wait. But you know, societies take time and nothing happens overnight. I need to be on boards. I need to be active. I need to be consulting and doing work out there. Fantastic. Michelle, you've alluded to this on a couple of occasions. Could you elaborate a bit more about what the transition process was like for you and whether it met your own expectations that you had going into it? Of course. Thank you. That's a great question. So for years and years and years, I came across, for the most part, as a very typical white male. I'm 5'8", I'm 58 years old currently. And I ran companies and I had Rolex watches and I drove Bentleys. I, I was, I did everything I could do to present a more aggressive external version of me. Whereas on the inside, I wasn't that way at all. And I was pretending to be something I wasn't. And I got to a point in my life where I was tired of pretending. Now, all along, I had great fears that I could ruin my career. I could ruin my family. I could embarrass my kids. I can embarrass candidly, my first wife and my current wife. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I worked, I always think of these things as, a, as, as kind of an outer ring. And on the outer ring, I had friends, casual friends when I'd go to New York or when I'd go to Boston. And I was able to be myself with those casual friends and not myself at home. And so I had casual friends who knew a whole lot about me when no one else did. And over time, I worked into an inner ring. I, I began to tell my children 
I told my wives. I think what amazed me so much is I've I had a lot so much inner turmoil about this, and I had heard through so many stories from individuals, but really from some younger people about their own being abandoned by their families once they came out and told their families. And I didn't know what to expect. And what I found was it validated how very fortunate I've been uh, and how lucky I am. My kids, all they wanted me to be was happy. They really didn't care. My first wife wanted to know why I didn't tell her. She, she now understands. My wife, Karen, and I have worked through it. My very good friends have stayed very good friends. Those that were casual friends, some chose not to be friends with me anymore. That's okay. I think I was my greatest obstacle because I think I was expecting the worst. And maybe sometimes as I expected the worst, I treated people in a way that, that I pushed people back because I just didn't expect it to work out. And so, you know, as I sit here today, I look back at the best five years because it's been about a five year, varying stages over five years to get where I am today. A lot of work colleagues now, I've resurfaced with them. I'm talking to old board members and whatnot. I think everyone does realize, hey, it's a little bit different external reading from me these days. Same brain, the same same will to win, the same experience base. And I'm more, I say, I'm mostly pleased with, with how it's gone. But again, it shows up in the film. I was a bit of a mess. It was, it was a real trying time for me. Kind of an embarrassing time when I look back. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I do believe that your honesty and willingness to open up one of the most private, painful experiences, but also joyful experiences in your life to the public when your film comes out will do so much good. I hope it does. Thank you. I really hope it does. Michelle, before we get into your professional life, before you transitioned and the 35 years you spent in Silicon Valley as a very successful businessman, I want to ask you if you have any advice to young transgender and non-binary students and young professionals, what do you wish you'd known when you were their age? And how can they realize their professional ambitions, perhaps in your former world or in your current world, in the business world, without experiencing too many bumps and bruises? So I dropped out of college in 1982. I was an English major at Santa Clara University. Neither of my parents went to college. And, and by the time I got to Santa Clara, while well, I did really well in a public high school where I went, I was ill-prepared. And so four years in, the... The reason I chose an English degree was I wanted to be a technical writer. And the reason I wanted to be a tech writer is I thought if I could ever make 40000 a year, because my father made 17000 a year, I'd be set. And so I, I, I dropped out at age 21 and was an overnight success after 20 years, as I like to put it. I toiled, but it was, it was a time in the Silicon Valley where the Silicon Valley was young. Oracle was a young company. Apple was a young company. And so I, I changed jobs frequently. But I usually changed jobs because I was being recruited and promoted. It wasn't probably until I was 30 years old that I realized that I needed to stay somewhere to get mass. And so when I began to stay at organizations for five years or so, I realized my skill set got a whole lot sharper. And I was able to more quickly move throughout those organizations in, in positions that gave me some learning. I was a VP of sales at age 25. I had hardly held a territory. I was a VP of sales at a public company at age 34. I was 
CEO of a public company at age 43. I opened the NASDAQ twice, opened the NYSE once, and my skill set was largely cobbled together by observation and, and very little doing. I guess I would encourage individuals to have a little bit of patience. Don't, don't let yourself get pigeonholed in roles of which there's no advancement, but stay, stay, stay for a while. Learn your organization, learn your own skills, learn and learn the skills of the job that's being asked of you. And you'll do a lot better over time than bouncing too much. Because as a hiring manager, I would always look at the, at the resume. How long have they stayed at places? How many job hops do they have? And for critical roles, if an individual had too many job hops, I wouldn't hire them. The irony is, if I go back to my early resume, I had a ton of job hops. I guess that would be my advice. Have a little bit of patience. So amazing advice. It's pretty generic in terms of how they self-identify. Do you think that there is any particular advice that you could give to a young trans or non-binary student or young professional? Or do you think really it's just one, one size fits all? I think on the one hand, there's a bit of one size fits all, but, but I think as you begin to think about transgender, non-binary, it's harder. And there are, there's a bias out there. And, and I think people don't want to self-identify as bigots or as having a bias that's, that's wrong. But people are that way. People are people. I think for those that are transgender, you just need to persevere harder. More is going to be asked of you. You know, it's, it's a little bit of the Jackie Robinson Major League Baseball thing. You're, you're going to have to be better and you're going to have to set an example and you're going to have to have a, a, a level of perseverance that's probably an unfair expectation, but you're going to have to have it for a while to get where you want to go and you can't give up. When I left Imperva, I, I thought my career is over. No one's going to hire me. No one's going to talk to me. I was pretty convinced that you know, even after selling companies and, and having a really good career that I, it was over because of what I had become. And I was so, so wrong with that. So you just have to try harder and you have to persevere. And you have to expect you're going to get knocked down and you got to get back up again. And you've got to do it in such a way where you set the best example in your organization. And what does that look like? I think you have to um, comport yourself differently. When I go into organizations now, whether to talk about board issues or talk about strategic planning issues, I'm candid about me. You know, the old version of me, I was a little bit of madman. You know, we'd, our jobs were we'd travel a lot. We'd have cocktails a lot. I'd get up in the morning. I'd have a couple of mimosas. I'd go to work. I can't do that now. I have to, to set a higher bar for myself and for others. So when I show up, I show up better than I used to. So I, I think if you're trans, if, if you're non-binary, if you're gay, whatever it is, you, you have to set a better example than the others. You have to work harder. You have to ask more questions. You have to, you have to stick it out. You have to put up a little bit of bullshit, which is hard. You have to be a little bit patient. Hope I'm not asking for something impossible, but you have to be a little bit patient. Yeah. So when you <laughs> left Santa yeah. Clara with yeah. a number of years of English language and literature under your belt, what was your first job out of school and how did you get it? Oh, this was fascinating. I wanted to be a tech writer. And again, it was an avenue to an income. And so I, that wasn't a very strategic thought as much as it was deterministic, get to this amount of income. And so I ended up at a little tech company called Altos. And Altos was a microcomputer manufacturer. Their VP of sales is a guy named Ron Conway. Ron is, has been branded the godfather of Silicon Valley. At the time, he was 31. I was 22. And I was first put into a tech writing job. And I, I dropped out of college making 17000 a year. I remember going on to my father and saying, Dad, I'm going to quit. 
you'd be proud of me. I'm making the same as you are now. And we didn't, no one knew. We were all bit deer in headlights. And remember my mother and father gave me a hug and said, I'm sure it's, I'm sure you're doing the right thing. And so I was in that tech writing role for about six months. And this company had a reorganization and they put me in technical support, which was a real problem because I'm not that technical. But what I realized quickly was the tech support organization was a group of, you know, four of us on phones answering calls from angry customers whose software or hardware didn't work properly. And then I saw the, I saw these sales reps, the folks that sold the product in more fancy suits and had better cars. They were, would always come back trying to take someone into one of their meetings to describe the technology. So I went to the Goodwill and bought a used suit because that's, that's all I could afford was a used suit. And at some point, because I was the one person in tech support wearing a suit and tie, they pulled me into the meeting. And then I became the systems engineer for the sales force. And then they realized I was okay at that, but not great at that. But I was much better with customers. And at age 23, I was a sales rep. And they had a $7 million territory at age 25. I was a VP of sales at, at a startup. It just moved quickly because I was focused and I found ways to slot myself in as best I could where I could add value. When I worked in the Valley early on, it, it was the wild, wild west. It was great. And what, what it required was hard work, determination, being intellectually curious, and taking all the hard jobs. And that's kind of what I did. It sounds like another key was finding the right mentor and impressing people that you work with. Yeah, you know, it's, that's a great, great point. I've worked for a variety of people over the years. And, and I can I, I can think about really good, successful individuals that were great managers. And I learned a lot from them. And I have also worked for some horrendous managers, just horrific. And and it's not that they're not successful. It's that their IQ is so low. Sorry, their EQ is so low. Their IQ is super high, but their EQ is terrible. And I've seen these folks just drive organizations into the ground. And I think I've learned more from those individuals on it than I have the, the highly successful tuned in individuals. Because some a lot of the time for me, Learning what not to do is more important than learning what to do. You mentioned EQ. For those who may not be familiar with it, it means emotional intelligence. So are you saying that maybe one of the qualities that makes up the Michelle Betancourt secret sauce is emotional intelligence? I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty tuned in. I'm not brutal. Yes, I, I would say very much so. I, th I think there are a few things. You can't underestimate the value of effort and hard work. And I have a decent IQ, but it certainly isn't a great one. And so I, I was never the smartest person in the room, but I was usually the most inquisitive. I would sit back. I would watch the room. I, I would understand who was in power, what was being said and, and how it was being said. And I would go slowly be before I jumped in. I always thought of it as the wisdom of silence, because sometimes in silence, you can take in so much and learn so much. And you can learn how to comport yourself, too, in a room. It was that. It, it was trying to understand how decisions were being made, trying to map myself to those decisions. And at large part, just being a good listener. That's about 80% of the battle. The other piece, I think, which was really important, it was an organic learning, if you will, is take responsibility. I remember I was 22 years old and we were having to get this data sheet out and I missed it. And there was a typo on it. I remember going to Ron Conway's office and I was terrified that he was going to fire me. And I showed him the typo and I said, I'm so sorry, miss. I will fix it. And he was just so glad I told him. And I realized I've seen individuals and organizations avoid blame, avoid fault, do whatever they can to, to not take responsibility for their actions. Someone's going to find out eventually. 
those individuals were always the first to lose their job. You can't make the same mistake three times. You've got to learn from your mistakes, but it's okay to step up and say, I screwed that up. I won't do it. I won't make that mistake again and follow through and not make it again. You get a lot more respect in an organization for that than you do of hiding and running away from problems. It's a great way of also diffusing an issue because when you go to someone and say, I screwed this up, I'll fix it. What are they going to say to you? They're not going to yell at you. They're going to sit back and go, my God, thank you for, thank you for telling me before I had to find out from someone else. A hundred percent. So Michelle, I try to ask all time for coffee guests to share a story with our listeners about a low time for them professionally when you either, and you've already shared a story where you screwed up as a, as a young professional with the typo, but maybe a big screw up or where you got fired. That may not have happened to you. It's happened to me where you had a terrible boss or challenging colleagues, where you really had to dig in to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And most importantly, what lesson you may have learned in the process and how you came through the other side? Okay, that's a great question. Something comes to mind. I was CEO at a company called Verity. We were a public company on the NASDAQ, and our focus was enterprise search if you will, we were the Google, if you will, for large, for corporations at the time. So they would build their knowledge management applications on top of us. You'd do a keyword search to find data and we'd be the engine delivering that data. When 9-11 happened, as we moved up through that August in, in September of that year, we began to see cracks in our business. The economy was starting to slow down a little bit and we had given guidance of a $40 million a quarter and then 9-11 hits. And our business fell off the cliff. We turned in a $20 million quarter as a public company. So imagine, imagine if Tesla came in at half its revenue expectation. It's cataclysmic. Our stock dropped by, you know, 60% and I was the CEO. And I, I remember that I've never been through anything more difficult that in my life. And, and the, the challenge was all of a sudden we had a, a burn rate that was high because we were no longer making money. I had to shed probably 10% of our employee base, which doesn't matter why it happens. It's the CEO's fault when it does happen because the CEO missed something in the business. And I clearly missed it. I had to go to our investor base and I, I had to ask them to stay with us because we had people flipping out of our stock because they didn't believe us anymore. I had employee morale issues because now they've seen a lot of their, their friends and colleagues leaving the business. It was a very dark time for us and kind of wanted to quit and just run away because it would have been easier at the time, although it would have been cowardice. And I remember having the team in, in a room and, and us kind of talking about what do we do. I remember we somehow got the organization to believe us and we somehow got the business right-sized again. And we have a, about a, a six or nine month time frame where it was horrific. We had to coddle customers. We had to ask favors from customers to get early deals into it so we can get back to our well-being. And at the end of the day, it was about us being honest with our employees and honest with ourselves. And every time since things have been really difficult, I've found you can't bullshit your teams. You can't tell a fictitious story. You have to be honest and really hope that everyone in the room is an adult and they'll be able to, to, to row that boat with you, that they'll be able to see through the gloom and see through the fear and realize that, that you're going to get past it. And when you do, things will be okay. And I, I think that for me was, was an important lesson that's always stuck with me. So Michelle, I actually have your CV here that you shared with me and I'm looking here at Verity and that's the same company that in December, 2005, 
Verity was sold to Autonomy PLC for $507 million. Yeah, it was. A, yes, that, that was a that was a good exit. That was a great company. So we <laughs> you came back from a twenty million dollar valuation to be yeah. sold for five hundred and seven million. Michelle, I I can't help but wonder how someone who was an English major in school and never went to graduate school to business school became such a successful CEO. How did you figure all of that finance and accounting out? You know, the finance and accounting was actually one of the most, to me, pretty simple. But again, when you run a company, your your job is to hire folks that are better than you in all the key positions. And if you do that, then you'll get a chain of good hires after them. If you, if you hire folks that are weaker than you, then you're going to get a chain of weak hires. I never had to be the smartest person in the room because I would never be anyway. So that I wasn't caught up in that. So if I could hire really good, capable folks that were better than me and then get out of their way and pay attention and listen, then I would do well. And I, again, I had the benefit of observation. I worked for some really great people and I worked for a couple train wrecks and I learned so much from all of them. And that, and that to me was I, a lot of years and a lot of good experiences and a lot of really kind people to listen to. Well, I have a hunch you also watched out for a lot of people too. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back and do college all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Michelle? Would you still have dropped out? Well, that's that's a tough question because it's, if I go on the premise that changing one thing would change everything, I guess what I regret about about the first time at college, and and I, I did finish, but I finished when I was forty six, and and I I finished because I had my triplet daughters just starting university. And the one who's now in New York, who's an actor who got her master's at the new school in acting last year, she was the one I was most worried about that if I didn't finish, one of them would hold it against me <laughs> and, 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 and say, dad, you didn't finish. Things worked out fine. But if I go back to your original question, I was not a good student. I wish I'd been a better student. I was woefully equipped. I didn't know how to study. My grades were poor. I lacked self-esteem. And I was probably in my own, you know, morass of not knowing what the hell or who the hell I was. But yes, I wouldn't change a thing. Wow. Michelle Betancourt, you are an extraordinary person. I am so excited for you about this latest chapter in your really incredible life. I hope Java Junkies will download New Normal your album on iTunes. And when Beautiful Lie comes out, I can't wait. I hope it eventually gets shown in theaters or makes it to Netflix or whatever the case may be so that we can all watch and experience what you've gone through, Michelle, so that hopefully we can become more well-rounded individuals, those who have the courage to live their life in the most authentic and fulfilling ways. Thank you so much for making Time for Coffee to talk with me and the Time for Coffee community. Thank you so much. I really enjoy this. I really appreciate the time as well. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 
24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.